0: Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. We have verses on the screen, but we always encourage you to bring your Bibles or grab one from the back. We want you to see this as you're holding it in your hands. Today we're going to look at the story of the transfiguration, where Jesus' appearance changed in front of the disciples. It is an amazing story, and I want to set the context before we look at it. The people of Israel wanted a Messiah. They wanted someone to deliver them from the tyranny, the oppression of Rome. They were overtaxed. They were second class citizens. And they wanted a Messiah, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, to come as a military leader, as a political leader, and deliver them. Jesus Christ fit the profile of the Messiah. They saw him teach with authority. They saw him doing miracles. Uh, They saw him raising the dead and the fame of Jesus spread throughout the country. And everywhere he went, large numbers of people gathered to see him. They not only wanted to see him, they not only wanted to hear him, but they wanted to make him king by force. A man this powerful, he had to be the Messiah, and he's the one who could deliver them, Even the disciples were jumping on the bandwagon. They wanted this political and and military power in the Messiah, but they had missed one thing, something that had been prophesied 700 years earlier by Isaiah when he wrote in chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, had gone astray. We turned each one to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the sins or the iniquity of us all. They missed that. Sometimes we want something so badly, don't we? We miss important parts of the process. We do that with relationships sometimes. We do that with job opportunities sometimes. We do that with spending habits sometimes. And that's what the disciples did regarding the Messiah. They wanted the Messiah, just not the suffering part. So Jesus took them up to Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles north of the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. On his way, you remember from last time, he said, who who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, or one of the other prophets, some say you're Jeremiah. And then Jesus said, well, who do you say I am? And remember, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, man, flesh and blood, Peter, could not have revealed that to you, only God from heaven. And then Jesus began to speak about his suffering. He began to speak about these things prophesied in Isaiah 53, and remember, Peter took him aside and rebuked him and said, Jesus... Man, that's a downer. The Messiah, that's not going to happen to the Messiah. And that's when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are speaking Satan's words. You are tempting me to, to miss, to shortcut the cross. Our story today takes place six days later. We can only assume... As Mark told us last week, that Jesus spoke about His suffering plainly. And we can only assume that He continued to speak plainly about His suffering for the next six days. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with Him Peter, James, John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. We don't know which mountain he led them up. Some say Mount Hermon. Some say it was another mountain. Certainly Mount Hermon was in that area. It really doesn't matter the mountain, but he took them up to a high mountain, and he took three disciples with him. Jesus had 12 disciples, but it was no secret to any of the disciples that there were three in his inner circle. The leaders of the disciples were Peter, James, and John. The leader of the three was James. These three thought probably that they were going up to the mountain with Jesus to pray. They had done that often before. It could have been night when they went up. Luke tells us they were sleepy when they got up on top of the mountain. But they had no idea what was in store for them. Right before their eyes, Jesus' face and His appearance changed. Look at verse 2. There... He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the snow. As they are revealing this incident later on, there are no words to describe it. So they have to use comparisons, similes. It shone like the sun. It was as white as the snow. When when Mark Tells this story in his gospel, he says his, his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Luke, when he tells the story, said his clothes became as bright as flashes of lightning. Now, no wonder there were no words to describe it, because think what is happening. Jesus is fully God. He is fully man. And being fully man, he loses none of his deity. And being fully God, he loses none of his humanity. He is unique. And there on that mountain, for this brief moment, Jesus, who had held his deity in check, he allows the fullness of God to come out of his body. He is transfigured before them. He is shining like light. Before them, the, world, the word transfigured is the Greek word metamorphosis. That's where we get our English word. It's, it's a picture of the butterfly, right? The, the, the caterpillar that builds a cocoon and then emerges as a butterfly. The change that we see on the outside came from within. And so Matthew says a metamorphosis took place with Jesus. What was inside him came without from without. Bright light, dazzling light, like lightning. An amazing picture of the glory of God demonstrated in the person of Christ. And then look who showed up. Look at verse 3. Just then, there appeared before Moses and Elijah. There appeared before them, Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Think about it. Two heavyweights from the past. Two heroes of the past. Peter, James, and John had heard about these guys. From the time they were little, these men were larger than life, and there they stood talking with Jesus. Now, there's a a lot of discussions among commentators why it was Moses and Elijah. The common explanation is Moses was there as the lawgiver, representing the Old Testament law. God had given the law through Moses. Elijah was there, a powerful prophet of the Old Testament, representing the prophets. It's interesting that these two men are the last Old Testament figures mentioned in the Old Testament. In fact, the last two verses of the last chapter of the last book in the Old Testament mentions these men, Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Remember, the law of my servant Moses the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So there are Moses and Elijah are alive, recognizable talking to Jesus. Now James and John absorbed the moment. Peter couldn't contain himself. So Peter being Peter says this in verse 4. Lord, it is good for us to be here. Really, Peter? It is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Some commentators say that that Peter... Uh, He was going back to the Feast of the Tabernacles, about building a tabernacle. Some say that it was late at night, and so Peter wanted them to stay longer. So he says, let me build some shoulders so you can stay here overnight. This is too cool for you to leave. The gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, are not so kind to Peter. Mark says he didn't know what to say. He was so frightened. And Luke says he didn't even know what he was saying. You know, we read such a small part of the disciples' lives, right? Everything God wants us to know for sure. But these guys interacted together. They had fun together. They ripped on each other. They traveled with each other. They had conflict with each other. They joked around. And can you imagine later on James and John relating that story and saying, Peter, what were you thinking about? It is good for us to be here, really? Did you say that? (laughs) And Peter said, well, you guys were so scared, you didn't say a word. Just like in the boat, when Jesus was walking out, I got out of the water, and you stayed in the boat. So I don't want to hear from you. But then Peter said, man, was I scared. I was so scared, I didn't even know what I was saying. In his fearful offer of those three shelters, Peter unwittingly put Jesus on par with Moses and Elijah. I'm going to build a shelter for you, Jesus. I'm going to build a shelter for Moses. I'm going to build a shelter for Elijah. In fact, think of it. In the disciples' minds... Moses and Elijah were probably elevated over Jesus. I mean, they had walked with Jesus. They had talked with Jesus. They interacted with him. But here's Moses and Elijah. And so right in the middle of Peter's statement, God interrupts. Look at verse 5. While he, while Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. A voice from the cloud said, this is... Just think of it, just the God bellowing this forth. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. The same thing he said at the baptism, but now he adds these three words. Look at the exclamation mark. What's he say? Listen to him. Listen to him. The Father wanted the disciples to know that the Son was not on par with Moses, was not on par with Elijah. He was distinguished. He was exalted. He was preeminent. Listen to Him. It is, uh, it's easy for us, isn't it, to become followers of men Rather than followers of Jesus, isn't it? It's easy for us to get our cues from CNN or Fox News rather than Jesus. In fact, let me ask you this we would all say, Oh, I want to follow Jesus, right? We've been singing about that all morning, all the campuses. Let me ask you a question. Where did you spend more time last week? Reading Jesus' words or listening to CNN or watching Fox News or reading USA Today on your iPhone? So our actions speak louder than our words. We can sing all these songs, but who are we really following? And you know what? It's even worse in Christian circles. We have set so many people up on a pedestal. We follow their systems. We follow their writings more than we do Jesus. We talk about going to this study or that study because it's put out by this person. Great stuff. We listen to podcasts of this person. I have no problem with podcasts unless we listen to them more than Jesus. That's not only dangerous, it's sinful. Modern technology may have exacerbated this problem, but it's always been around. Satan would always want us to desire to follow men or women rather than Jesus. J.C. Ryle wrote this back in 1856. Bishops, priests, deacons, popes, cardinals, councils, Presbyterian preachers, and independent ministers are continually exalted to a place where God never intended them to fill. That's true, isn't it? And made practically to usurp the honor of Christ. Let the solemn words of the vision ever ring in our ears, hear ye Christ. Listen to Him. They'd been frightened the whole time. But man, when they heard the Father's voice, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. Now check this out. Jesus, who had been transfigured, the glory of God shining through Him, standing with Moses and Elijah in their glorious splendor, voice coming from heaven. Look what He does in verse 7. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And then they went down the mountain with him. Amazing story. Everything was back to normal. And they heard that familiar voice. And they felt that familiar touch. He had touched them on the shoulders when he walked with them on the road. And when he stood with them in the crowd. And they felt that familiar touch. Hey, get up. Let's keep going. Don't be afraid. I want to stop here, and I want us to consider some important truths from this amazing story. The first one is this. The transfiguration proved the deity of Jesus. It proved the deity of Jesus. For most of his time on earth, the light of the world kept the light inside him. But for that brief period of time, when he was on that mountain, Jesus released the glory of God within him. And the timing of the event was strategic. Remember three years that Jesus taught, on earth. His ministry, basically only three years. The first year was the year of inauguration, his baptism, when he started his ministry, when he chose his disciples. The second year was the year of um, popularity, when Jesus is now famous spreading throughout Israel. The last year is the year of opposition. That's where we are here And Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He is making his way back to Jerusalem. There'll be more miracles to do. There'll be plenty of teaching to do. But he is making his way back to Jerusalem to die on the cross. And the disciples are having a hard time with that. They hear what he says about suffering, but it's going to be hard for them to see the one they've walked with hanging there on a cross. But when they see Him on the cross, and when they see His suffering, and when it looks like He is the victim of those around Him, when it looks like He is powerless, they have what? They have the transfiguration. And they can always remember, we saw God in the flesh. John says it this way in John chapter 1. We have seen His glory. What's John talking about? I'm talking about transfiguration. We saw the glory of God bursting out of Christ. The glory of the one and only. Peter's more specific. He writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We received honor and glory from God the Father when when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Then Peter says this, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him where? On that sacred mountain. Man, we saw the transfiguration. We beheld his glory. The transfiguration also drove home the truth about Jesus' suffering. Look at verse 3, back in Matthew 17. Just then there appeared before before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, what in the world do you think they were talking about? What would Moses, Elijah, and Jesus have been talking about? Well, Luke answers that question for us. When Luke tells the story in his gospel, here's what he says. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which was about to, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. They talked about his death. Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about the cross. Moses and Elijah were talking to their Savior. They were standing there, Jesus holding back. Think of the contrast. Think of the picture. They're standing there. Jesus is holding none of his deity back at this point. Is bursting through him. Moses and Elijah are standing in glorious splendor. Think of that picture. And what are they talking about? Jesus beaten and bruised and crucified on the cross for the sins of the world. Man, what a contrast. And the disciples, they had heard Jesus talking about that when He sat on a a rock on a mountainside. They they heard Jesus talking about that when He leaned against a a tree at night when the campfire was crackling. But now He was talking about it with with deity bursting forth from Him, talking about the suffering. This proved that the suffering of Jesus was nothing new. The old covenant and the new covenant were not separated, but they were connected. Moses, the lawgiver, was talking to the one who would come and fulfill the law, the one who had never broken the law but would die for those who couldn't help but break it. Elijah, the the prophet, was, was, was talking to the one who would come and fulfill every prophecy. They were talking to their Savior. And I can't help but think. They were thanking Jesus for what He was going to do. And they were encouraging Him. And the disciples heard it all. The glory on one hand, the agony of the cross on the other. The transfiguration also provided undeniable evidence of eternal life. You ever wonder if it's really true? Seriously. Are we really going to die and pass on to eternal life? Is it going to happen? Is that just something we like to tell ourselves to to kind of numb the the pain of loss or the inevitability of, of death? Is it really going to happen? Well, Jesus had told his disciples... If you trust in me, you're going to pass from death to life. Jesus said, he who believes in me will what? Never die. And the disciples said, that sounds great. I hope it's true. But on that mountain, there was proof of eternal life. Moses had been dead for 1,500 years. 900 years earlier, Elijah had been taken to heaven in a whirlwind. They were alive. They were talking with Jesus. These guys of their past, these heroes of their past, they were alive even though they were dead. Speaking, they were recognizable. Speaking to Jesus, the clear evidence of eternal life. I know many of you have lost loved ones this past year, some even recently. And I just want to remind you, if they knew Jesus, they really did pass from death to life. They are more alive now than ever before. Sure, you miss them. But I got to tell you, I hate to share this with you, but you miss them more than they're missing you. They are with their Savior. They are with Jesus. They are not floating around on clouds playing harps. Boy, that'd get boring after a while, wouldn't it? They are in heaven doing the thing that God created them to do. I don't know exactly what that is, but I know this. In heaven there will be meaningful work. There will be satisfying work. Satisfying is not even a good word to explain it. They are with the Savior and, you know, sometimes we say, man, I can't wait to get to heaven to see my loved ones. That's true. That's true. That's a true statement. But we really, when we get to heaven, who are we going to see? Jesus. The one who died for us. The one who made it possible for us to be there in the first place. It's Jesus we will worship. Heaven's going to be a great place where we're reunited I know it's hard for us to think about because we miss our loved ones so much. But reuniting with them will be secondary to Jesus. Sure, it makes heaven more real when we have loved ones there, for sure. But Jesus will be the one that we bow before. That like Moses and Elijah, we'll get to talk to in our resurrected bodies. And his glorious splendor. The transfiguration provided undeniable evidence of eternal life. It also confirmed the great sacrifice of Jesus. Look at chapter uh, 17, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Don't tell anyone about the transfiguration. Don't tell anyone about Moses and Elijah until after the resurrection. Again, why did Jesus do that? Because he did not want people to believe in him for the wrong reasons. He didn't want people to say, oh, I trust in Jesus. He was transfigured. He didn't want people to say, oh, I trust in Jesus because he's the guy who can, who can turn water into wine, or, or he's the guy who can raise the dead, or, or he's the guy who can do miracles, or he's the guy who can, who can feed all these people with a little lunch. That's why I trust in Jesus. Those were all signs. Those were all pointers. Those were all things to say, listen to my words because of what I did. The real issue was the cross. Jesus wanted to make sure people trusted in him, not because of the transfiguration, but because of the cross. By the way, why do you trust in Jesus? Look, I know Jesus can put marriages back together. That's cool, and he does that. And sometimes Jesus uses a failure or a challenge in our life to get our attention, right? But i got to tell you, He didn't come just to put your marriage together. Sometimes um, we go through a tough stretch. We're without a job. And so, boy, we we turn to, to Christ. And sometimes God uses that to get our attention. He does. But God didn't send His Son just to get you a job. Sometimes we go through illness, and it's tough. And we pray for healing, and we want that to come. And we want Jesus to fix stuff in our life, right? And and sometimes he does heal. But God didn't send Jesus just to heal, even when he was on earth. He sent his son to go to the cross. That's why we trust in him. That's why we trust in him. He didn't come to make us happy in that sense. He came to make us holy. He came to allow us to have a personal relationship with the living God so that we could experience the abundant life that he can give us here and then have eternity to boot. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this because they may trust in me for the wrong reasons, and I can't have that. Can't have them miss heaven because they trusted in the transformation. Jesus continued to talk with them. Look at verse 10, down the mountain. Disciples ask him, when do the teachers of the law say Elijah, or or why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? And Jesus explained to them, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore everything. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him. But they've done to him everything they wished. And in the same way, the Son of Man is going to have to suffer at their hands. Jesus here was talking about John the Baptist. And they get that in the next verse. He had called John the Baptist the Elijah that had come. John the Baptist had come to prepare the way for him. And Jesus was saying Elijah did come in the form of John the Baptist. Or John the Baptist was the new Elijah. And they put him to death just like they're going to put me to death the transfiguration confirmed the great sacrifice one more thing in this amazing passage <clears throat> where Jesus <clears throat> allows his his deity to burst forth we also see don't we the, the tremendous humility of Jesus Again, for a time, He's there radiating, speaking with Moses and Elijah, the the Father speaking from heaven. And then these great men left. Jesus is back to normal in His body as He continues His way to the cross. Look at verse 6 or 7. The disciples are scared to death on their face. But when Jesus came, but Jesus came and touched them, get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, who'd they see? That familiar face. They saw no one there but Jesus. What a picture of the creator stooping down to interact with, with us. Saying, hey, get up, time to go. Don't be afraid. And then what's he do? He walks with them down the mountain, answering all the questions they have. Beautiful picture of the humility of Jesus. Yeah, I don't know what you're going through today. I know in all of our lives, we have, you know, just this, this mixture, right, of, of joy and, and sorrow and, 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 and clarity and confusion, All balled together in our heart. You may be going through some things that are just extremely frightening. A test coming up next week, a surgery coming up, some things with your family, some things in your life, job. I I don't know what it is, but you think about it and and, and you're not up inside. And you're afraid. And like the disciples, sometimes fear can just paralyze us. And we we just kind of melt where we are. And then Jesus comes, doesn't he? And we feel that familiar touch. And he says, get up. Let's go. Don't be afraid. See, I don't know what you're going through today, but I can tell you this. Jesus would love to come and touch you on the shoulder and say, let's go. Walk with me. Don't be afraid. You may say, Lord, I don't want to go this way. That's okay. I know where I'm going. Follow me. Don't be afraid. But I don't want to head down that path. That's okay. Follow me. Don't be afraid. Some of you here today, no doubt, need to hear, to feel that touch. Don't be afraid. Get up. Let's get going. Can't stay paralyzed in fear. Let's go do the things that I made you to do.